0: All right. good evening everybody. Glad you're here. We'll get started a little earlier than normal tonight. But uh, we're going to be in 2 Peter tonight. Glad everyone's here. So what we normally do, you guys know we've been walking through the Scripture. We walk through a book of the Bible every week, once a week on Wednesday nights. So we started in Genesis. I think we actually did an intro week to the Bible pre-Genesis. Then we hit Genesis and we've walked all the way through. We did a week called Between the Testaments connecting Old Testament, New Testament, talking about Jewish, Jewish expectation of the Messiah, Jewish fulfillment of prophecy. We talked about the what they call the silent years, which if you study the book of Daniel, weren't actually silent because God actually maps it out ahead of time and says this is what's going to happen, but they are, in a sense, silent. There aren't any books written in that time period, and then we come to the New Testament, so we hit Matthew, we've walked all the way through, we're now in Second Peter, and so we'll finish... Toward the beginning of next year, but we are going to fin- we're going to finish what we started, so we'll finish in Revelation, and I think you'll see a massive contrast between how much time we have to spend in Third John, which is not a long letter at all, con- contrasted against and, and Jude, contrasted against Revelation. One week for that, so. Uh, but hey, we said we we're going to do one week bo- one week for each book, so that's what we're doing. We've put audio recordings of this entire series. And everything since 2013 that we've done on Wednesday nights in here, on the website. Uh, but for some weird reason, you have Sam Catalano's will be up, but my last two, so Philema, uh no Hebrews and First Peter. For some reason, something happened with the sound file. So I've got a little backup handheld recorder here as well, and um, I think it had to do with the sound pack that I use when I walk around. So we're trying. This pulpit mic tonight, and I don't think we'll have, hopefully, any issues. But other than those two weeks, Hebrews and First Peter, if you want to listen to any of the audio, uh, they should be up uh, on our website. You just go to Kelview.com, click on the sermons tab, scroll down, you'll see an audio window. They're all in there. The audio window only feeds so many, so it doesn't go all the way back. But if you click on our, the name of our church inside that audio window under the sermons tab, it'll take you to the website, not ours, that actually stores all of those files on their servers. They're our host, I guess, if you want to call it, or our website's the host. And so you can go there, and you can listen all the way back to 2013, 2014, somewhere around there. So I'll open us in prayer, and then we'll jump in. We'll do Second Peter tonight. The title is Truth That Endures Attack. Last week was First Peter, and it was Hope That Endures Suffering. Tonight's Second Peter, Truth That Endures Attack. Let's pray, and then we'll jump in. Lord, thank you for tonight. Thank you for bringing all of us here. Thank you for uh, bringing us together. The fellowship that we have in you makes any other kind of relationship, in fact, you say in the Gospels, in the red letters, even family relationships pale in comparison, uh, if, if they're not believers, to um, the relationship that we have together as believers, even if we're not genetic family. It's an amazing, very, very unique thing. And so I thank you for that tonight. Thank you for getting us the second letter that Peter wrote and putting it in your word for us to instruct us and to grow us and to help us learn more about who you are, who we are, and how it applies to our life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so on the back of your handout, we put structure, and that's going to be really a, a decent outline for you. We do that every week just for consistency's sake. Where we get that chart, we tell you right below where we get that chart. That's the book that we're using a little bit of it to help us walk through every book, a book a week. It's called Talk Through the Scripture, Talk Through the Bible, something like that. Anyway, uh, Wilkinson Boa are the authors. Fantastic resource. If you want a more condensed, modern version of that, it's uh, the Bible from 30,000 Feet. Can't remember the author's name, but that's a more modern version. It's also a great resource. I don't have it, but a couple of the guys on staff do. They love it. So that's it. That's the structure. Uh, If you turn to the front of your notes, we'll start with introduction and setting. Very similar, obviously, to the first letter, but a few distinctions. And then we'll jump into content. We'll walk through the letter. And then at the top of the back of your handout, we'll look at application. Of course, we'll have application laced throughout. But last week was a little bit application heavy. This week we'll have some application, but it'll be a little more academic heavy. I just wanted to switch it up a little bit style-wise, and so we'll do a little bit of both, though, tonight. All right, so the occasion, introduction setting. The occasion for Peter writing his first letter that we covered last week was the intense suffering of Christians in a culture that absolutely hated them. That suffering was both verbal and physical, and remember we talked about Nero and all the crazy stuff that he did. The guy was nuts, and some preachers think he was demon-possessed, and I think that's entirely possible. I don't doubt that at all. When you read what the guy did, it was just vile. So the occasion for Peter writing a second letter that we're looking at tonight is a little bit different, although the time periods are similar. It's a little bit different, and there's no direct geographical audience as much as there was in the first one. The first one was modern-day Turkey. This one is, we're not sure of the area, it probably got... Uh, uh, passed around in a wider area sooner maybe he doesn't identify the geographical area he's writing to so the occasion for him writing the second letter that we'll look at tonight is false teaching that crept into the church by men who were leading some people away from the authority of God and his word so first Peter is about encouragement in the middle of suffering second Peter is about truth in the middle of unbiblical teaching so the author is Peter It says it right here in chapter 1, verse 1. Chapter 1, verse 1, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ. So he's the author. Peter plays a massive role in the early church. If you guys don't realize that, go back and read Acts 1 through Acts 15. The book of Acts, first 15 chapters. After 15, Peter disappears completely. We really don't hear from him again. He's referenced a little bit in Galatians um, but after Acts 15, he disappears, and we're not sure what happened, quite honestly. Uh, tradition tells us that he was martyred and he was crucified, and he said, Look, I'm not even worthy to be crucified the same way my Savior died. You crucified him right side up, you crucified me upside down. So that's probably what happened, but scripture doesn't say. In the scriptural account, he just totally disappears. But go read Acts 1 through Acts 15 to look at the influence Peter had on the church, it was massive. So Origen, an early church leader, is the, is the historian that mentions that Peter was crucified in those details. So we think that's probably true, but obviously anything that's not Scripture is not necessarily going to be inerrant or perfect like Scripture is, and so we're not 100% sure. Um, so the Greek of this letter, so y'all remember this, but just in case you don't, Old Testament was written primarily in Hebrew. There's a few Aramaic sections, but vast majority of the Old Testament's written in Hebrew, the New Testament's written in Greek. So there's some, a few Hebraisms uh, carried over from the Hebrew language, but it's actually written in Greek. So the Greek of this letter is different in style and grammar than the Greek of 1 Peter. Uh, again, last week was a little more applicational. This week we will have application, but a little bit more of some academic stuff that I'll include just to mix it up. The Greek of this letter is different than the Greek of 1 Peter uh, grammar-wise, structure-wise, style-wise. And so again, there are some who attack the idea that Peter is the author, just like they do with the first book. But if Silvanus wrote 1 Peter under Peter's direction, we looked at that possibility because he's mentioned in chapter 5 of 1 Peter, then uh, it's likely that Peter's second letter was also written by a guy under Peter's direction or that Peter himself wrote it. Either way, Peter is the source of the content of this letter. A lot of times back then you would have what's called an amanuensis, a scribe, a secretary. You would dictate to them and they would write for you something. Uh, we think that Paul used one from time to time. We think that Peter might have used one with one or maybe even both of his letters here. So either way, Peter's the author. You may have just had someone writing it as Peter's telling him what to write. So that's why you have, very possibly, you have two different Greek styles. But anyway, the, the theological liberals attack this letter, and they go, hey, we don't think Peter wrote this. Uh, it says very clearly in chapter 1, verse 1, that uh, he is the author. Multiple early church fathers attest him to the author. There's other references in the book that only Peter experienced, and so uh, we obviously, we take scripture at its word. We believe it was Peter. So that's the deal there. Um, the audience, look at verse 2 of chapter 1. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. That is uh, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse. I'm sorry, verse 1. To those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. So he's writing to Christians. He doesn't identify a geographical area like his first letter did, which was modern-day Turkey, but he's writing to Christians. So we do know that. What were they experiencing? Well, remember last week we talked a little bit about this. They were suffering under Nero's Roman Empire and the culture around them, but they were also getting bad teachers coming in telling them all kinds of goofy stuff. Since we don't know the geographical spread exactly of where they were, they are probably spread all around, we can't guess as accurately at what that false teaching was. But there were two main false teachings back then, the same thing's true today, and uh, so a lot of people say, man, I wish I could go back and live in the first century church. Well, why? Uh, their persecution was worse. Uh, there were false. T- there's false teaching today. Well, there was false teaching back then, too, and they didn't have, depending on what year you're talking about, they may not have had all these completed and put together in a volume yet uh, like we do. I'd, I would take today personally. So uh, they're suffering under Nero's Roman Empire, they're suffering under the culture around them, and they're also dealing with false teaching. So let's look at the content, next section in your notes. So chapter 1, start in verse 3 and 4. So he says, grace and peace, verse 2, be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus, and then verse 3, as his divine power, listen to what he says, listen to the verb tenses, okay? As his divine power has Has given. What tense is that? Past tense. Has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us, past tense, by glory and virtue. And then verse 4. By which, this glory and virtue that he extends to us, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises. We're going to look at what those include. That through these, the promises, you may be partakers of the divine nature, number one, and number two, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. So listen to the verb tenses. He says, he has granted, past tense. What has he granted? All things for life and godliness. So if you've trusted Jesus Christ as your savior already, then you don't need anything else to be godly than what you already have, than what he's already given you. He's already given you everything. So... So how do you get this? Through knowing him. It says, uh, his divine power is given to us all things. Does he say some things? No, he says all things. Everything that pertain to life, everything we need to live for him, and godliness, to live in, you know, lined up with his character, through, through what? Through the knowledge of him, through knowing him. So the Holy Spirit comes to you, says, hey, you're in a mess, but Jesus provided the fix for that, the only fix for that, Not only is that true, but you personally in your account need what he did. You need his fix, his death on the cross applied to your account. So the Holy Spirit's job, part of his job, is to come to you and show you all that, convict you. The word convict in the Greek literally means to win an argument. So to win the argument in your life about your sin and your need for his salvation, and then your response, when it's yes to that is when that's a yes response and you trust Christ as your Savior... You're saved, and so what Peter's immediately going into with these guys that are uh, being bombarded by false teaching is when you're saved, Jesus has already given you in that salvation everything you need for godliness and for life. So how do you participate in his divine nature to live for him? Well, he's, he mentions it in verse four by trusting in his promises. He says, verse four, by which you have been, uh, have been given to us exceedingly great, well, who's he talking to? Believers. To us, exceedingly great and precious promises. So basically, I like to think of it like this. Verse 3 is your bank account. Verse 4 are the checks. Most people don't write checks anymore, but just work with me here. Or you say debit card. Verse 3 is the bank account. Verse 4 is the checks. Your trust in something, um, God put in your bank account everything you need to live for But it's up to you to write the check, to cash the check, to, to authorize the check, or to swipe the debit card or use the debit card. In other words, it's already there. Oh, God, give me the strength to get through this. He's, he already has. Lord, show me the path that I might—and that's a good thing to pray. I'm not saying don't pray that, but I'm saying the provision for all those things are already there. He gives us those. Your trust in something is verified by your actions. Actions are based on belief, not knowledge. They're not based on knowledge. Your actions are not based on what you know. They're based on what you believe, and there's a distinction between those two things. I can know that this is a chair. I can know very clearly that this is a chair. I know that's a chair. I know it's supposed to hold me up. I I have a set of knowledge about that chair. I know it's maroon or burgundy in color. It's nice. It's padded. It's got a nice frame to it. It looks solid. I know all those things, but my belief is not based on what I know. Your belief is based on what, your actions are not based on what you know. Your actions are based on what you believe. Do I actually believe that that chair is going to hold me up or not? That determines whether I use it or sit on it. And I'm not going to embarrass one of you to to come and ask you to sit on it, but that's it. If I go sit on that chair, I can know that's a chair, but not believe it's going to hold me up. And so I never sit on it. I never use it. I never use it for the function for which it was designed and created and all those things. You see? So that's it. He's saying, "Look, God has put in your bank account everything you need to live for him. He's put in his word, everything you're going to need for instruction and for all those things. It's not enough to know it. You have to believe it. If you actually believe it's true, you'll put it in action. If you believe, well, I I know Jesus existed, maybe he was an okay guy, he taught some nice things, he healed some people. That was great, but" I don't really believe in him, well, then my life's going to reflect that. If I don't believe that what he says is legit, I'm not going to do the things that he said. That's what he says in one of his parables. Y'all remember the, the, uh, the man who built his house on the rock versus the man who built his house on the sand? That's what Jesus is talking about. Those of you who hear my words and pull them into your life, actually do them, you're like the man who built his house on the rock. When the storms came, the storms of life come and beat against the house, the house stands. The guy who hears the words of mine and doesn't do them, ignores them, says, Yeah, I know what you're saying, but I don't really believe it. It's like the guy that built his house on the sand. We talked about this. The the trials of life come. The house doesn't stand. It it falls. So uh, you find the promise in the Bible. So if, if you're praying, for example, Lord, give me victory over this sin. That's not a bad thing to pray in and of itself, but what you need to understand why the moment you're praying that is he's already given it to you. It's already there. It's already in your account. So you need to find the promise in the Bible that addresses that particular sin. You find what truth in the Bible that needs to replace the lie you've been believing, not knowing, believing, because action is based on belief, and therefore acting on, and you let the truth of the scripture rebuke and replace that lie, whatever it is. Okay, I believe, I'm tired of my wife. I believe there's someone out there better than me for my wife, and that lady is, is the, that person. So if I really believe that, what am I going to do? What are my actions going to do? I'm going to go to her, leave my wife. And we see it happen all the time. Well, I married the wrong person. That's the wrong belief. You know the right person for you? Do you know who your soulmate is? It's whoever's on your wedding uh, license, your marriage license. That's your soulmate. <laughs> Because that's who you covenanted, covenanted with God to be. I can't say that word tonight. To be with. But if I believe a lie that, you know what? Not really the right person. I married the wrong person. That person's better for me. The grass is greener on the other side of the fence. Now, I don't know about guys with gals, but let me just say, ladies, if you're thinking that with guys, there's no such thing as greener grass. We're all knuckleheads. So just don't think that, oh my gosh, there's this other guy. I don't know if that may be true or not with women, but no, but no, it's, it's never true. The one who I married, that's the one, that's it. So uh, I need to, f- so what I do with my dysfunction and my sin that I'm struggling with, I need to find what, what's the lie that I'm believing that's leading to that dysfunctional behavior. And then what truth or truths in here speaks to that lie and corrects it. And then I need to take that, believe it, pull it into my life, act as if it's true because it is, pray over that issue and and rebuke and reject that lie. that's it. The only reason, let me say it this way, the only reason for a Christian to disobey God repeatedly in a particular area is when you either don't know the promise, see verse four he's given a, he's put promises in our bank account. all we need to do is write the check is either you don't know the promise or you really don't trust the promise. I mean that's the only reason. I'm not talking about occasional sin and occasional slip-ups for crying out loud. We all do that. We do we do that daily, if not, by, you know, by daily, but we do that every day. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about persistent, entrenched, Paul would use the word stronghold, stuff like that. Uh, the only reason is that I either don't know the promise that speaks to that situation and corrects that lie, or I really don't trust the promise. You know, God, I, my marriage is real hard right now. This other woman does look better, uh, and I don't really trust that we can work it out, that, that you can do something out of this. So if I don't trust that, I, my, my behavior is going to follow. My actions are going to follow what I believe. Now, here's what you add to the promises as you grow in your walk with Jesus. Here's what you add. He gives a list of things. five through seven of chapter one of Second Peter. But also for this very reason, giving all diligence. So you add, by the way, diligence is working at something consistently. It's just working at something consistently. Not perfectly. No one said perfectly. Jesus is the only one that's perfect. If diligence required perfection, none of us could have it. <laughs> diligence requires consistency, working at something consistently. But also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith. What, what am I adding as I'm growing in my walk with Jesus? Well, these, he lists seven things. Virtue. So the first thing he says. That's basically moral excellence. Now, I don't get to define what that is. Scripture already defines that for me and lays that principle out. So virtue, moral excellence, and then he says, to virtue, knowledge. Knowledge is, that Greek word is practical knowledge, how to react. In, in, there's a problem um, in translation. In English, we say knowledge is knowing about something. In English, and wisdom is knowing how to how to apply it in Greek it's the it's it's switched it's the opposite so this word knowledge is what we would think of as wisdom it's practical knowledge how to react in a given situation how to conduct myself so virtue moral excellence knowledge it's practical knowledge he says add to the knowledge self-control so basically no pleasure controls you your pleasure in your god does but no 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 physical pleasure controls you Add to self-control, perseverance. Some translations say patience, perseverance. In other words, hey, no pressure will make you break. There's no amount of pressure that will make you break. Again, God does these words that I say, Jesus says. It's like the guy that built his house on a rock. Firm foundation. No pressure. The storms come, doesn't break the house. No pressure will break you. He says add to perseverance, godliness. Godliness. It means to be, basically, it means to be respectful toward God and what God thinks actually matters to me. It's the most important thing. Godliness. Add to godliness brotherly kindness, he says. Brotherly kindness. Um, it's the word Philadelphia, where we get our word Philadelphia. Phileo. Brotherly kindness. That means I play well with others. Uh, it implies an emotional attachment, but it doesn't mean romantic. It can, but it doesn't have to. So I can have philia with my wife, and it's a romantic, emotional, it's an emotional love that includes romance. I can have philia, though, pure biblical philia with my buddy Luke over here, and it's emotional, and I do emotionally love him. Uh, love you, man. Uh, but but there's no romance. That's philia. It's an emotional attachment. That's brotherly love. There can be a romance, but obviously it doesn't have to be. And so he's, then he says, so what does that mean? Well, the way we treat each other, the way we treat other people, that I'm supposed to have not just some casual attitude of, yeah, they're okay, but an actual emotional attachment to that person. And here's the hard thing, even if I don't like them, you don't have to like somebody to, to decide to do that. And then the next word, he says, add to brotherly kindness. That word brotherly kindness a lot of times gets translated love in the New Testament, but it doesn't here. For good reason, because the next word is the other word for love in the New Testament, agape. Add to brotherly kindness, love. So that means, look, agape means you treat other people with the value that God assigns to them. What value does God assign to my spouse, to my kid, to my friend, to my neighbor, to my boss at work, whatever? What, to the little kids that I help teach on Sunday mornings, what value does God assign to them? Okay, well, I need to treat them with that same value. And it's a choice I make to do that. That's agape. So he says, look, you add these. Now, that's not an exhaustive list. It's just a sampling. And uh, look at verse 8. If these things are yours and abound, look at this. You'll neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he says, look, these attributes are the kinds of things that go along with an experiential knowledge of Jesus. Okay, see the word knowledge in verse 5? Again, we're going to go a little academic tonight. See the w- uh, word knowledge in verse 5? you all see that? That's the word for what we would call in English wisdom, practical knowledge, how to react in a given situation. See the word knowledge in verse 8? In the knowledge of our Lord? That's not exactly the same word. It's the same root word, but there's, a, uh, there's an epi. Oh, what do you call that in English? Um, it is a prefix, but it's a, uh, oh, man, should have written this down. I know the word, and the word's escaping me. Uh, in English, you have two from, with, what are those? Prepositions. Epi is a preposition in Greek. So when you take N, epi, there's multiples. When you take a preposition in Greek, you can't do this in English, and you stick it on a, a word, a verb, like the, uh, or a ni- noun like this, knowledge, when you... When you combine those two, it intensifies the word. It heightens the word. And so it's experiential knowledge. It's not just knowledge about something. Oh, I know Jesus exists. Oh, I know he's a great guy. It's epi-knowledge. It heightens it. So it's experiential. I know who Jesus is because I talk to him. I listen to him. I spend time in his word. He saved me. I love him. He loves me. I, I feel and experience his love for me. You see that? That's different than knowing who Jesus is. So you can have knowledge, but then this other word, knowledge, is an experiential knowledge. It adds that epi, that um, preposition, onto it. You can't do that in English. In English, if you use a preposition, it pretty much has to open a prepositional phrase. It can do that in Greek, too, but you can also tack it onto words and, make, and have one word, and, and it intensifies that word. So that's what you have going on there, which is pretty cool. Uh, it's so clear. It's so concise. It's it's like watching a football game on an old-school TV versus watching a football game on a new 4K curved screen. You know, you see the sweat dripping off the guy's, you know, um, or the spit dripping off the guy's uh, mouthpiece or whatever. You can't see that on, on the old, you know, Mitsubishi TV. We used to play James Bond Goldeneye on our old, on a, the first TV we ever had was an old Mitsubishi. When you get shot, the blood comes over, look like Pepto Bismol. So, so the Greek is not like that. It's it's high definition. It's HD, and a lot of times it comes through in the English, but sometimes it does not. Uh, which is always why it's helpful, by the way, to have a nice study Bible that can point you to some key Hebrew and Greek words. It's also why it's helpful, by the way, to have. Uh, there's a cool Bible. Go to Mardell. Go to the Bible Wall. It's like the mecca of the Bible Wall. If y'all have never been there, y'all need to go see it. So if, if I'm discipling a guy and he says, "Hey, I don't have really have a good Bible. I have this kid's Bible, or I have something from a long time ago. I don't have one at all." I go, "Hey, next week for our discipleship meeting, we're not going to do lunch. We're going to go meet me at Mardell. We'll spend an hour with the at the Bible Wall and pick out two things. You want to look for the translation that you like, and then you want to look for the study notes that you like. And so we'll you can mix and match those. So we'll do that." So there's a fantastic one called, oh, man, the Key Word, Key Words, something like that. It has Key Word Study Bible, and it goes through in almost every word. In the Old Testament and the New, it has a little number, and that's the strong reference number. You can study that word, and then in the back of it, it says, here's what this Greek word means, here's what this Hebrew word means. So it's really cool. There's so many tools for you to do this that back in the day, you know, even 100 years ago, did not exist. To study the language, you had to actually know and be fluent in the language so and I'm not I just know just enough to be dangerous um but yeah you know biblical Greek we took uh uh, what four semesters you have to have at least eight to ten to even start to be able to just read it on the fly and be really really proficient with it so they don't it's just you know a little bit so you guys have these tools for you where the scholars who've taken 12 semesters of it and teach it ...have written these resources for you. So use those. They're great um, with with solid guys. Okay, look at verse... So he said, add these things. Look at verse 9. So we'll go 1, 9 through 11. For he who lacks these things... What things? Well, the stuff he just talked about building into your life. He who lacks these things is short-sighted, even to blindness. He's forgotten that he was cleansed from old sins... Therefore, brothers, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure, for if you do these things, you will never stumble. In other words, how do I know I'm saved? Well, if I'm if I'm building these, and that's not an exhaustive list, but if I'm building a list like these seven things into my life, and there's some consistency there, there's obviously, you know, John says, look, I, I write this so that you can know you're saved. Uh, one of the most terrifying thoughts in many other religions is I think I'm saved, but ultimately it's up to God, and I can't really know for sure. And Islam says, look, they have no assurance of their salvation. They say, look, Allah weighs the good and the bad, and at the end he decides, and if one outweighs the other, then that's, that's where he goes. But they don't know, they can't know, and so John, our faith is different and distinct. John says, you can know, you can absolutely have assurance In your own spirit about whether or not you're saved. Therefore, brethren, be more diligent to make your call and election sure. That's what Peter's talking about. Verse 10. For if you do these things, you'll never stumble. For so an entrance will be supplied. Oh my gosh, I wish I had. I could spend 30 minutes just on verse 11. So for so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That word supplied in verse 11 means to add a choir behind a play to make it richer, to pay the expenses of a choir and add a choir singing behind a play. You know, The theater was big back then in, in Greek culture. Behind the play, behind the theater, you added a choir to it to enrich what was going on, to sing about the scene or to you know, whatever, right? And so how much more dull would Phantom of the Opera be without any music at all? So think about that. And so it's adding a chorus to something. That's what that word supplied means. So whatever your entrance you have into heaven, Peter's saying, it's awesome. I don't know what that'll look like. I know John 14 says, Jesus comes and gets me. He doesn't delegate it to an angel. There may be angels involved, but Jesus personally comes and gets me. says it in John 14 because it's personal to him. He doesn't say, hey, go Michael, go get Luke. Because I don't really feel like talking to him today. Maybe I'll talk to him tomorrow. You know, go go get Luke for me. He doesn't do that. He personally comes and gets us. Uh, when we die. And so there's this entrance that's supplied. Because Peter chose to use that word, it's an extremely rich word. If I could just, oh, it would take a while to just explain all that's involved in that word. I don't know all that that means because Peter doesn't tell us all the little bitty details. Some preachers think, and this is possible, this is an idea. This is not clear in Scripture. This is just uh, an idea that one preacher had, um, that a few preachers have, that I think is certainly possible that. This word supplied is that everyone you're personally connected to, that not that you know in life, but that you're connected to, that you've ministered to, that you've influenced, that you've led to Christ or prayed with or whatever, everyone in that scenario that you've ministered to in this life, that they would be there at your entrance into heaven. They would be there to greet you. They would be there to, it would be like the most awesome family reunion you've ever had times 10,000. I mean, think about that for a second, and I don't know if those are the exact details, but think about that for just a second, and that's a little bit something along the lines of what Peter's trying to say. That word is just packed. Look at 12 through 15. In chapter 1, he says, For this reason, I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things, though you know and are established in the present truth. He's going to talk about guys. Why is that important? Because he's about to talk about guys attacking the truth, trying to lead them away from it. Yes, I think it's right. As long as I am in this tent, they use that to describe their body. As long as I'm in this body, to stir up you up by reminding you, knowing that shortly I must put off my tent, I must leave my body. He knows his death is coming up soon. I don't know how he knew that. Shortly I must leave my body, just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. And then he says, moreover, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after I'm dead, after my decease. So he uses... Peter's telling him, look, I'm not going to live much longer. And Jesus showed me that. You see that in verse 14? Jesus showed me about my death. Where did Jesus show Peter how Peter would die? Does anybody know where he did that? Do you have a reference Bible? So we're going a little more academic tonight, right? Okay, does anybody have a reference Bible? A reference Bible is not a study Bible per se. It's a It's a Bible that has little tick marks, numbers or letters usually, right next to a superscript, right above the, the word. You got one? Yeah, they're, they're so helpful. If you yeah. don't have one, I think you should have one. So you're looking for one. So check out verse 14, the phrase, as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. Does any of y'all that have a reference Bible, does it tell you a verse there? Yep, yep, 21, 18, and 19. So there you go. You go, what in the world is he talking about? Well, if you have a reference Bible and it is clearly mentioned somewhere else in Scripture, that's what it's doing. So look, for example, John 21, 18, and 19. So you bounce over there real quick. Now you can get lost in the rabbit hole of a reference Bible. So eventually you have to come back to your main text when you're studying. But it's neat to do this because it's so helpful. It ties Scripture together for you. Some people know this about their, that they have this in front of them. Some some people don't. They, I didn't know what those letters meant. I didn't never use that. Well, in the inside margin or the bottom, it'll have the verses for those reference. Okay, so John twenty one, eighteen and nineteen says Jesus is talking to Peter. Is that a clear throat? Oh, most assuredly I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished. But when you're old, you'll stretch out your hands and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. This he spoke, signifying by what death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. So there's some sort of communication between Jesus and Peter where he says, look, it's, it's not going to end well for you. You're going to die a, a rough death. And so Peter knew that. Uh, 1.16, back to Second Peter. And I don't know how he knew that death was close, but he sensed it somehow. And he tells him in 12 through 15, look, it's close. So look, I need to write you this letter because it's important. Look at 116 through 21. I'll rush through this section, but oh my, we could spend four weeks just on 16 through 21. Verse 16. Okay, Peter's about to tell us what the biggest convincer in the world about the truth of who God is, is. What's the biggest convincer? What's the most effective way of of someone to to be convicted to go, wow, that, that is God. That is from God. That does have God's fingerprint on it. He's about to tell us. It's not miracles, by the way. Well, it is a miracle, but not what we think of when we think of visible miracles. 116 through 21. We didn't follow cunningly devised fables. That's apparently what these false teachers are making up. When we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty, for he received from God the Father honor and glory, when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory, and reference Bibles will tell you what this is mentioning, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased, and we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. So what did Peter just say? Well, if you go to Matthew 17, 1 through 3, you see the Mount of Transfiguration where Jesus displays part of his deity. I don't even know what that looks like, but it was shining. Jesus shows them part of his deity, not just his uh, humanity, to uh, three guys. You remember who they were? Peter was there. Another reason we think Peter obviously writes this letter. Peter was there. Who else? Yeah, James and John. Yeah, Yeah, so yeah, sons of thunder, right? So Jesus is using humor and he nicknames them Sons of Thunder because they're so loud and rambunctious. So they're there. And and so Peter just said, look, we saw that, but look, listen to what he says, verse 19. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed. The Greek literally reads this is where the Greek comes in, high def, right? We also have the more reliable, more sure, more convincing prophetic word which you do well to heed, to listen to, as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. We think he's talking about the return of Christ there. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation or origin, verse 21, for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So what did Peter just say? He says in verse 19, he says in 16 through 18, look, We saw Jesus' transfiguration on the mountain. As amazing as that visible miracle was, what does he say in verse 19? The prophecies recorded in Scripture, the more sure prophetic word, the prophecies recorded for us in Scripture are more sure evidence and more convincing than any visible miracle that you will ever see with your eyes. In fact, sometimes miracles won't convince unbelievers at all if they are not willing to believe God's word. Let me show you what I mean. Look at Luke 16, 19 through 31. I don't think most reference Bibles have that passage here uh, in 2 Peter, but it's a great example. Luke 16, 19 through 31. It's the rich man and Lazarus. I don't think it's a parable. A parable is a story that's a theoretical, hypothetical story to teach you a lesson about what the kingdom of God's like. That's what a parable is typically has one moral or one lesson to it. It could have actually happened, but it, it didn't have to. That's not the point whether it actually happened or not. The point is it's a, it's a hypothetical story that I'm using to, to teach you what my kingdom's like. This is not a parable. It names names. Parables don't. It gives you specific places. Parables don't. This is an actual story. Luke 16, 19 through 31. Look what it says about the word of God and miracles. There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, fared sumptuously every day. He had it well. He was living in high cotton. Okay. There was a certain beggar named Lazarus full of sores who was laid at the gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's tables. So this guy was living rough. Hand to mouth. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. So it was that the beggar died. He was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. So there, angels are involved there. Um, the rich man also died and was buried, and being in torment in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and he said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in the water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things and likewise Lazarus' bad things, evil things, but now he's comforted and you're, and you're tormented. So look, just how you, your position in life doesn't necessarily mean your position in afterlife. It's what you do with, with what God tells you, what God reveals to you under the new covenant, what you do with, about his son. Um, verse 26, besides all this, between us and you, there's a great gulf fixed. There's a chasm we can't cross. So that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. Then he said, okay. He said, I beg you therefore, Father that you would send him to my father's house for I have five brothers so that he may testify to them so that they also don't come to this place of torment is what he's saying and abraham said to him listen they have moses and the prophets let them hear them what did he just say what's moses and the prophets all the scripture that had been written up to that point they have the word of god let them hear that but the guy said no 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 father abraham if one goes to him from the dead they'll repent in other words, look, if somebody was dead and comes back up out of the grave and walks to him and looks up and says, Hey, my brother sent me to tell you that he's not in a good place right now and you need to he wants you not to end up where he ended up. Look at this. If one goes to them from the dead, they'll repent. In other words, if they see this big miracle, it'll change their minds. It'll convince them about God. Nope. Look at thirty-one. He said to them, he said to them. If they don't hear Moses and the prophets, if they don't listen to God's word, neither will they be persuaded, even though one may rise from the dead. And one did rise from the dead, for crying out loud. Jesus Christ did. But uh, that's what he's saying. What's his point there? Jesus is telling this, not as a parable, as an actual story that actually happened. What's his point? If they reject that God has designed it in such a way that if I'm not willing to listen to this, Nothing will convince me. Oh well, why don't you pray that some mirror, visible miracle, would some healing? They would see somebody. It won't if they won't be willing to accept this. It, it won't phase them. It won't won't change their psyche. It won't change their thought process about it. So that's what Peter's saying. Second Peter one sixteen through twenty one. He's saying, look, the most convincing thing. To me, this. think about this, this is Peter talking. The most convincing thing to me wasn't the miracle I saw Jesus do on the Mount of Transfiguration, nor for that matter, all the other healings I saw him do. The most convincing thing to me, Peter says, is the word of God and the prophecies that he put in here where he told the end from the beginning. Where he put things in here and he said, this is going to happen, then this is going to happen, this is going to happen. And they all, not all of them have happened yet, but the ones that have, they all happened Im- exactly as, it, as God said. And Peter's saying, look, to me, that's the convincer, not the fact that I got to see Jesus. You know, the Jews go, oh, show me a miracle, show me a miracle, show me a miracle. And that was Jesus' biggest rebuke of them. He said, look, I've already shown you signs, and I'm not going to show you any other signs except the sign of Jonah. What's the sign of Jonah? He says, as as Jonah was three days and nights in the belly of the great fish. And I think Jonah, personally, I can't prove this with Scripture. This is a willism. I think Jonah died, and God revived him but whatever. As Jonah was three days and nights in the belly of the fish, and then he came back to life and preached to Nineveh, so the Son of Man will be three days and nights in the earth, and then, he'll, and then I'll come back to life. So he said, That's, there's your sign. That's the only other sign I'm going to give you. I mean, he just reached this point where he was fed up. And so uh, 121, what's he say? Chapter 1, verse 21. Prophecy doesn't come. We didn't make this stuff up. Where did it come from? The Holy Spirit inspired these guys to write. That's it. So he says, look, what's in this book was inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. Men wrote it, but God led them in their writing in such a way that their personality and grammar style and writing style does come across on the page. God doesn't totally possess and take them over and just make them a channeling machine to write exactly what he wants in that way. That's uh, demonic New Age stuff called channeling. Y'all can actually go to the metaphysics section of the bookstore and find books. I'm not kidding and people have their spirit guides, and their spirit guides take their body over, and it's called automatic writing, and they write, and there's, they publish. They're published. You can go in the metaphysics section and read it. Texas has less of it. If you go to areas like New Mexico, Colorado, Arizona, where New Age uh, has a stronger spiritual stronghold there, you'll find it all over the books. Uh, here, it's a little harder to find, but it's out there. It's called automatic writing. It's New Age stuff. It's demonic garbage. God doesn't act in that way. When he moves through us, he still uses our personality, our experiences, us. It's not just God. It's God through you. It's God using you, your experiences, your past, your, your uh, story. So that's what he wants to do. The demons don't want that. They want to take us over to steal, kill, destroy. You know, They want this earth for themselves. They don't want us inheriting it at all, and so that's their deal. God says, look, this is what Peter's saying. The Holy Spirit inspired scripture in such a way that My personality comes out on the page. My experiences come out on the page. (laughs) But every word that ends up on the page, I believe, down to the verb tense, is inspired by the Holy Spirit. It's perfect. It's inerrant. It's exactly what we need to hear. So we have in our hands, right here, if you don't realize what a blessing that is, you should. I'm sorry, you should. We have in our hands what the Holy Spirit wants to tell us about who he is. And who we are and what your life should look like. And anything that contradicts or speaks against the Bible, including me, is false teaching. And if you listen to it, it will lead you in a direction where you will be robbed of your purpose. Your dreams that you should have in life will be killed. And what your life should have been for your creator will be destroyed. And that's John 10.10, 10, right? The enemy comes. I come to give you life and abundant life. But what does the enemy come to do? Steal, kill, destroy, Every assignment he has in an unbeliever's life or in your life, yes, he also has assignments in believer's life, uh, will fall under one of those categories. He's sti- that's what he does. He's not original. He has nothing new. He does what he did from the beginning. Steal, kill, destroy. I want the earth. I don't want you all to have it. I want to kill the Jews so that they won't get saved in mass and call for their Savior to come back. And that is, by the way, when Jesus does come back to the earth, prophecy seems to indicate so I don't want Jesus to come back to the earth because I want the earth for myself so I want to kill all the Jews that's the whole Jewish deal they hate our guts if, if you realized how much I have a good friend man. I have a good friend I grew up with that lives in Plano that, that went that is going down the Buddhist new age path and I'm like buddy you, if you think that those demons behind those religions have good intentions for you think again they hate your guts. If they could kill you right now, none of us would be alive. God loves you. God is the only reason they haven't. God is what restrains them. Uh, the presence of the Holy Spirit and the truth of his word conquering lies of the enemy, that's what helps restrain and, and push him in his activity back. So Peter's saying, look, this, we didn't make this stuff up. This is through us, yes, but it's ultimately from God. God's the source of this. So, uh, mm, chapter 2, verse 1 through 3, he says uh, there's going to be false prophets that come, just as they have in the past. But there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false prophets among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them, denying God himself, and bringing on themselves swift destruction, and many will follow their destructive ways. What does Jesus say? Broad is the path that leads to destruction. Most people go that route. What does he say about the other path? Pilgrim's Progress. If y'all never read Pilgrim's Progress, you can go read it. At least the kid version. Uh, Narrow is the way that leads to life. And there are few who find it. And he says, um, by covetousness they will exploit, verse 3, by covetousness they will exploit you with deceptive words. For a long time their judgment has not been idle and their destruction does not, slumber so hey their their judgment's coming eventually so here Peter warns them about false teachers we've just talked a little bit about there are two kinds of early false teaching that's common in the New Testament still common today one is legalism that's the Judaizers that Paul deals with in Galatians where they come in behind him and they go oh you found Christ so you're saved and they go yeah yeah the believers in Galatia this is why Paul writes the letter of Galatians by the way the main reason These guys were coming in going, Oh, you're saved. Yeah, yeah. I even got baptized. And yeah, I've trusted Christ. Oh, cool. You're a Gentile, though, right? Yeah, I'm a Gentile. So you've been circumcised. Well, no, I'm I'm a Gentile. I never came in through the Jewish way. Oh, well, you're not saved. You have to come in through the Jewish door. That's it. So Paul goes, No, 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 no. Do not listen to that. And the whole letter of Galatians is about that. So that's one of the false doctrines you have. You have the Judaizers. Uh, basically that's legalism. In other words, you have to obey this set of rules to be saved, and if you mess up on the set of rules, you slip up, you're toast, and then you've got to come back. (laughs) So that's legalism. And then number two, you kind of have the opposite end of the spectrum. You have Gnosticism, the Gnostics, which John deals with, which is heavily influenced New Age that I was talking about, which John deals with in 1 John. When When John writes 1 John, not the Gospel of John, 1 John, he deals with, Gnosticism, which basically leads to hedonism. In other words, they believe that there's a disconnect between spirit and body, so because there's a disconnect, the, the spirit is what matters, the body doesn't matter. So whatever I do in this life in my body, doesn't matter. Use drugs, sleep with prostitutes, That they, they were doing a lot of the temple worship, it was just a way to make prostitution uh, more, you know, more palpable and make more money, so they would go do that all kinds of things, because they believe it doesn't matter anyway what you do with your body. Only the spiritual matters, and there's, there's no connection between the two. There's absolutely a connection between the two. What is true spiritually does manifest itself in this physical dimension that we live in. We can't see the other dimensions. We know they're there. We can't see them fully unless God somehow reveals us. You know, to them. There are angels all around. There are demons all around all the time. And they're fighting, and crazy stuff is going on. If you could see it all, we probably would just cower down all the time or be ducking, you know. But it's that you can't see it because the dimensionality, there's a shift there. The dimension we live in, but it's all interconnected. There's no, there's no, uh, Gnosticism's false. And so it leads to, I can do whatever I want. And it ultimately, one of the things it leads to, it's closely connected with liberalism that says, I'm not talking about political liberalism, I'm talking about theological liberalism that says, This stuff, it's just fairy tales. I mean, you actually believe that God created everything because Genesis says he did? That's, we now know better, right? Because we know all. As man, we know all. We can't even get computers to work right half the time, but we know everything. Yeah, okay. Um, I won't go and camp out there very long. (laughs) So you have legalism and you have hedonism, and they're kind of two opposite ends. Legalism says, I mean, You've got to do everything just right or you, or you can't be saved. No, that's what Jesus is all about, And then, uh, although we do strive for that. And then hedonism says, hey, don't worry about what you do. They're the other end of the spectrum. And those two false teachings that were there in the first century that the Bible authors deal with and correct, guess what? What did I say about the enemy? He's not original. There's nothing new under the sun. Guess what two, not the only two, guess what two big lies he's telling today still? Same deal. Right? And so you have my friend who's studying Buddhism and going down this path and inviting all these spirits into his home. And I'm going, dude, what are you doing? That's real stuff and it's dangerous. You don't need to do that. So now Peter talks about these false teachers and the deception they bring. He does that in 2 4 through 22. We won't read all that, but that's 2 4 through 22. He discusses, hey, here's what these false teachers look like. Um, they're going to teach you false things, they're going to allure you, they're going to bait you, and you get the clear picture from this passage that false teachers aren't just teaching false things. There's also evil in their life that they're letting take over, and the false teaching is just an indicator of the fact. The false teaching is just a symptom of that fact. It's funny, I won't name his name, but when you... even in in preaching, when you have one preacher start to emphasize something so much and he quits talking about the other stuff that the Bible has to say, and I I saw this happen with this guy, love this guy, he was a fantastic preacher, but he he only talked about this one thing, and then you find out later his whole ministry fell apart, his marriage fell apart, his life fell apart, and you find out later, oh, uh, he was just focusing on this one thing, It, it, it wasn't. That that caused him to do these. Bath- it was that was a symptomatic that he had already slipped in this area, and so he was only focusing on that part of God's word, grace, and not focusing on the other part, accountability, holiness. You know, the call to be holy, just like God's holy. So you see that play out, and I saw that play out in his life, and I thought, it's, "That's it. That's a symptom of it." So You got to stick with all of God's word, and what He's saying is, "Look, these false teachers—they're not just false teachers. There's something behind that." There's something going on behind that, more than just the false teaching. Next, Peter talks about the second coming of Christ, but he uses it in a unique way. He brings an interesting application to it. Look at three, one through nine. This is one of the most important every passage is important, but this is definitely one of the top in Second Peter. So real quick, let's look at three, one through nine, and then we'll wrap up. Beloved, I now wrap so believers. Beloved, I now write to you the second letter. My first letter is First Peter. This is my second letter. Again, another indicator that this is Peter. In both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder. Why? So that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. So here's what he says. Listen closely. Knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days. Uh, there's the naive or simple there's the fool and there's the scoffer. Those are the three losers in Proverbs. You go read all the Proverbs. There's those, it's one of the three. It's either they're simple-minded, they're naive, they just don't know yet and they stumble into something that hurts them, or they're foolish and that's the second degree of severity. They're, they're just foolish and they do foolish things all the time. They've, they've been naive so long now they're a fool. And then there's a third degree of severity in the Proverbs, that's the scoffer, that's the person that they don't care that they're a fool, they're going to scoff at anything that's true and valid. So this is what he says. Scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts and saying, and these are some of these false teachers, I think, that he's referencing still. Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, died. That's a euphemism for died. All things can, it's like when we say pass away, we mean they're dead. It's just a nice way of saying they're dead. For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. In other words, these scoffers look at you and they go, you think Christ is coming back soon? Paul believed that. He died. Jesus didn't come. Peter believed that. He died. Jesus didn't come yet. John believed that. He outlived them all probably. He died. Jesus hadn't come yet. The New Testament, uh, guys of men of faith and women of faith believe that. They're gone. He didn't come yet. When's he coming back? You're so sure he's coming back. Why hadn't he come back yet? You see what I mean? That's what he's getting at. They're going to scoff about it. All things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this they willfully forget, they suppress this, that by the word of God the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of the water and then in the water. In other words, by his word he created everything, including us. By which the word that then existed perished, being flooded with water. So he is still involved. He does still judge. He's referencing the flood there. Of course, he said the rainbow is my promise that I'll never flood the whole earth again. And then number three, verse seven, but the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and the perdition or destruction or judgment of ungodly men. So he will come back and judge everything, every ill act that's ever been done. So he's saying they willfully forget those things. But beloved, do not forget this one thing that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. In other words, what, what to you feels like a long amount of time, I mean, God's outside of that time dimension itself. To him, it's just, it's not the same. He doesn't have the same reckoning of time that you do. Uh, kind of like a husband and wife on a, sh- a Christmas shopping trip. The, the wife says, we've been here just a few minutes. The husband's like, feels like two hours. Okay. Um, sorry, I had to throw that in. Uh, the Lord, Listen. The Lord is not slack or slow concerning his promise, promise what? To return and judge. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some of us count slackness, but he's long suffering. What's that word mean? Some of your translations even say it. Patient. He's patient toward us, toward you, not willing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance. What in the world did Peter just say? The world's a mess. God could come back today and end all of that mess. And scoffers are going to come back and say, why doesn't he? Where's your God, right? That's the um, theodicy is the technical term for people that, say, that struggle with this concept. If God's all good, God's all powerful, why does evil exist? And that's part of this scoffing too. It fits right in. God could come back today and end all of this mess, so why doesn't he? Well, there's probably many reasons, some of which he knows and I don't, but one of them I do know because Peter actually tells. God leads Peter to tell me in this chapter. Peter tells us right here, because if Jesus comes back right now, there are people who haven't responded yet to the gospel, so that would be good for you, but not for them. So God's waiting until just the right moment when people will have, will have already had an opportunity to repent until he comes back in his perfect timing. And some people even believe, and I don't think this is too far off, although I, I don't know one way or the other, it's possible. Some people even say that there's a number God's waiting on, and when that number of, of saved people is fulfilled, he'll return. That the original design, this is not clear in scripture, this is just a, a thought. That the original design of original creation was, look, I'm going to design the garden, perfect. What did Jesus tell Adam and Eve in the garden? Be fruitful and multiply and do what? With the earth. Fill it. Fill the whole earth. So obviously you're going to reach a cap point at some point. You're going to be done filling. So some scholars speculate. Well maybe whatever that number was. Is the number that. Because look. as How many people. Billion people are on the earth right now. He says remember broad is the path. Narrow is the path. So most people are going to choose the wrong way. There are a smaller number that will choose. The, that will go with Christ. And go the right way. So. It would take a long time for that to be. Now, that's just a thought. That's an idea. That's neither uh, 100% sure, obviously, in Scripture. But whatever is involved in God's timing, if it's that or if it's not that, whatever is involved in God's timing, God's going to come back to the perfect time, and what he's waiting on is repentance. Do you see that? So in our minds, we think, why didn't he come back right now and end all evil? But in God's mind, he's, he's balancing. That's probably not the right word, but that's the best word I have as a limited human being, he's balancing the tension between, yes, I want to come judge evil and stop it. I do want to do that, but I'm not doing it yet because there's also this other need that's, and these are inversely related, right? There's this other need that's bringing tension that the longer I wait, the more there's people repenting. There's people coming to Christ. There's people being saved. That's important too, isn't it? And which one's more important? The suffering that you have to endure in this life because evil is still here and God hadn't come back yet, or people coming to Christ? Which one's more important? The second hands down that 's Peter 's point, in fact, in fact, look, he even brings it up again, verse fifteen in his closing remarks. consider that the long suffering of our Lord is salvation. he brings it up again don 't forget God waiting means people repenting, people coming to christ it's part of our calling is to witness and do that and so Um, Peter ends this letter with some closing application in 14 through 18. So, by the way, 2 Peter 3, 1 through 9 is the best answer to the theodicy issue. If God's all good and all powerful, where is he? Well, let me tell you where he is. Peter actually answers that question. 2 Peter 3, 1 through 9 clearly answers that question. If he came back right now, my neighbor I'm praying for, it'd be too late if he hadn't repented. So he says in application at the end, he says uh, 3, uh, 14 through 18. He says, therefore, beloved, looking to these things, be diligent to be found in him in peace, without spot, blameless. Consider the patience of our Lord of salvation, what we just talked about. Also, our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, is written to you, as also in all of his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which some things are hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people, talking about these false teachers again, twist to their own destruction, just like they do with the rest of the scriptures. Now wait a second, what did he just call Paul's letters? First off, when Peter wrote, Paul's letters were also already circulating along with Peter's. What did he just call Paul's writing? Scripture. So already we didn't decide what was going to be in the Bible or not going to be considered in the Bible in the fourth century with the council, what was the council, Nicaea, with whatever that council was named. That's not when we decided. All they did in the fourth century was agree with what the early church from the very beginning already knew and already, and already accepted. These letters are legit, they're from God, these aren't. They already, there was an early recognition of that. So Peter's even referencing Paul's letters that were already circ- beginning to circulate, his earlier ones, and then, and some of his later ones, and then he's calling them scripture. Interesting. Y'all see that? You see the inter- interconnection there. You therefore, beloved, verse 17. Since you know this beforehand, beware, watch out, lest you fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked. He's talking about these false teachers. But instead, what's the best guard against that? Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and forever. Amen. So what he says is, look, the answer to that, the best boundary, the best protection against that false teaching and being led astray is growing in the truth. The best protection against being led astray is to keep growing in your walk with Jesus. Don't stop. Don't say, oh, man, uh, that football game Saturday night was... you know, had me up till 1130. I'm tired. Church isn't that important to me. Yeah. And I go, you know, don't, we need that. A crucial part of your growth is to be with each other, to be with the church, to be, um, when you're on your own for, for an extended period of time, not because you're sick or something short term to be on your own for an extended period of time. And to be honest, and I'm not trying to throw people under the bus here. I promise I'm not, but this has been probably the single biggest burden on me for the last almost two years. When you're on your own for an extended period of time, I'm not talking about shut-ins and people that physically can't get out. I'm not talking about that. You're easier prey. You are easier prey for the enemy. What what does Peter say in in his first letter? Be sober and vigilant for the adversary your devil walks about like a roaring lion. How do lions hunt? Does a lion get any zebra in the pack he wants? No way. He gets the guy off on the edge going, hey pack, y'all have fun. I think the grass looks good for me over here. They get that one. They get the gazelle that's off on their own. They get the young gazelle that's stranded off on their own. They get, I, you watch it play out on my dad's cattle ranch. When a, when a cow drops a calf, it stays there for about three or four days or a little while, half a week maybe, and it is deathly still. In fact, when you stumble on them, you think they're dead, but they're not. They're, they know instinctively because God wired into their brain to be still and quiet, shut up, so that the coyotes won't find them because the herd goes off and eats, and then the mom will come back and, and feed it. And it'll just sit there when coyotes do find it it's a feast usually because the rest of the herd that's how lions hunt that's what satan does he gets us when we're on our own so um one time we were having a family dinner in the back of our deal my grandparents were over I must have scared my grandma to death and I didn't even say anything I ran in the house I grabbed the thirty that's got a scope that's never quite sighted in right but that's my dad so I grabbed the thirty thirty scope I leaned on the edge uh, he 's got a huge porch in the in the back of his ranch house and it's got a, a call you know columns so I leaned it on the edge of the column and they're right over here eating <laughs> i've got this thirty thirty I rack around and i there's about three coyotes that found a calf that would you know and I just lay into one of them and I won't go into the gory details of what happened I enjoy it, but most people think that's sick um, don't worry I don't transfer that to humans but And so I let this coyote have it, because why? I got to defend the calf. The calf is helpless. He's on his own. So then, you know, I got to kill the coyote. So I kill him, which is a catch-22, because when you stress the adult-to-pup population, they have to hunt that much harder to feed the rest of the pack. So it's really it's a vicious cycle. But you got to stop it. I mean, they can't. You can't just let them kill your calf. That's how Satan hunts. He doesn't just get anything. He gets the guy that's like, you know what? I'll do Zoom Church for 18 months. I don't need the church. Now, I'm not talking about shut-ins. I'm talking about people that have the attitude that they can go, but they, but they just won't. And so um, we need each other. That's what Peter's, part of what is indicated in what Peter's saying. The best protection against all this false teaching that's going to lead people astray is regular involvement and growing. And part of that growth is the fact that we need each other. There are obviously legitimate short-term reasons to hit the pause button on that. Um, But limited. Questions, thoughts? I'll pray us out. Sorry, I took us a little over. We still got 20 minutes before the kids are done, anyway. Questions or thoughts tonight before I pray us out? Oh, thanks, man. Glad you're here tonight, by the way. Glad you're here. Anybody else? Let's pray. God, uh, thank you for giving us this letter. Um, Thank you for the fact that your word has truths in it that aren't, uh, they aren't all comfortable pills to swallow. Some of them go down easy. Some truths go down easy. Some go down, it hurts our throat all the way down, like goes down sideways. Uh, um, But Lord, we're walking through the whole scripture for that very reason. We can't pick and choose what we're going to talk about, what we're not going to talk about. We have we have to cover it all. If you, if your spirit, if Peter's right, if your spirit did inspire these guys to put every word on this page, then if we skip massive parts of your word, we're, we're missing out on part of what you want to tell us. And so that's part of the reason why we have this series. We started in Genesis. We're going to go all the way through Revelation. We can't dig in every single verse, but we're going to get a taste of every single letter in your word. So thank you that Second Peter is one of those. Thank you for the fact that the early church had this supernatural recognition of that fact. And all the council in the 4th century did was affirm what the church already knew uh, and that this is your word. So, um, so thank you for that. Uh, Lord, um, we're not meeting again until next month, so I just pray that you would be with us. Uh, we're going to keep meeting on Sundays, obviously, so I just pray that you would, um, you would be with us. You would remind us and, and put the craving in our hearts through your spirit, um, our desire which is a good desire, uh, that comes from you to, to be with each other, uh, regularly, doesn't give a frequency requirement, but it just says regularly, often. Um, if we haven't heard from someone in a while that we need to reach out to, that we'd give them a quick phone call, uh, tonight before we go to bed or in the morning that, uh, we just say, hey, I love you. Is there anything I need to pray with you about? Um, that, that's important too. Yes, we need each other, but there are also those out there who, who maybe physically can't make it or, or whatever the story is. And, And so part of the church's role is also to be the one that doesn't just meet together, but also reaches out to them. Help us do both well, uh, not perfectly, but diligently. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Love you guys. We'll see y'all the first Wednesday of January, but we still have Sunday stuff, so we'll see you Sunday morning.